I live in LA and um, I've got my I've got a studio space and like of course my my place it, my place is all it's all equipped to be rec- uh, to record um, but of course the album was recorded in a, a profession like a professional studio but I did actually I did did the background vocals on this uh, on this um, setup so <laughs> the background vocals are done at home was that a pandemic edition no. No, no, no. It was all actually after. I moved out here after the pandemic, so it just made sense. You know, everybody was moving out here, and my life started to become focused out here. Uh, my record label, my management, my my partner, my band, rock and roll, just being out here and everything. Because this Nashville and LA are pretty like rock and roll cities. So that's a very deliberate move that came with yes. this shift in. Yes. Musical focus, I would say. I always wanted to come out here, and it, I was just waiting for the right time to make this shift. And um, the pre- preparation for it was happening during COVID, so that's what I was doing for those two years. Where were you based previously? So my career was always based out of New York, but I lived in Virginia. Because as a kid, I mean, I grew up in Virginia, in Charlottesville. But as a kid, I was going up and down the coast with my parents, um, weekend warrior gigs, kind of with them. And so New York was always like the musical base. But um, I, n- I only lived there for a year. <laughs> I never really was in New York like everybody else was. I'm in New York myself. I live in Queens. Yeah. Um, compared to New York, Virginia seems like a pretty good place to ride out a pandemic. Yeah. I mean, it's I was where I'm from. I'm from Appalachia and I, I needed those mountains. And, you know, it was um, quite a it was a good place to be. Yeah, you're right. I was in New York, too, every now and then. One of the big issues with New York, obviously, just space generally, but also uh, a lack of access to nature. We've got some nice parks, and you, know, oh, you can yeah, take a train out of town. Dr- yeah, and- take a train, and b- drive an hour and a half, and you got like beautiful nature up there. But, uh, but yeah, I know what you mean. It's not within walking. But, you know, the parks are gorgeous. Yeah, but LA's got a little bit of both, it seems. LA's got... Yeah, it's got a, I mean, desert and you can ski and then go surfing in the same day in the wintertime out here. <laughs> so so you were touring with your parents pretty early on. Yeah, well, I mean, touring, like not like I'm touring now, of course. My parents were... You were along for the ride. Yeah, like they, they my mom teaches, still teaches at UVA. Uh, she was double duty at William & Mary as well, teaching voice, um, teaching private lessons during the week. And on weekends, they would go off and do gigs. So um, if it made sense to bring me with them, if I didn't get taken out of school too early, you know, they'd bring me after school on Friday, we'd drive to Annapolis or Baltimore or something and um, stay with family and then drive up to New York for a Saturday and then uh, do a afternoon gig on Sunday, maybe somewhere, and then drive home that night. Like, that's kind of what was my, what my life was, you know, and it prepared me for the life I have now because I was sleeping in the back of the car with my head resting on like an amp or something and using a, a blanket to cover my body so I wasn't cold, you know, very similar. It prepared me for how to sleep on airplanes now. By nature of what they did, they were yeah encouraging of your career early on? Yeah, they never pushed me into anything and nor did they discourage me. You know, they were just, if she wants to do it, she can get up on stage and sing with us. And of course, there, my mom found uh, this youth jazz band that was, you know, touring every summer and they did a little record. Uh, kids, you know, like elementary, middle school, high school age. And I started playing trumpet and singing with this band called the Young Rascals Jazz Project. 
and so that was a band that like I was not just with my parents but I was with kids my own age too that were really like actually one of those kids is in this famous band called Butcher Brown Corey Fonville the drummer he and I were in that band together when we were kids the trumpet is your first instrument well I guess trumpet and piano kind of simultaneous piano for uh, getting into like all the great composers and Bach and Mozart and, and uh, knowing how orchestration works, seeing it and knowing how it works on the piano. Um, Scott Joplin, I love playing rags, um, but trumpet in terms of playing in an ensemble, singing in choirs too, which is what I urge young singers. Like they start, if you have kids or something, they start the kids in choirs, not vocal lessons, because you have to learn how to blend and, you know, making your voice malleable is so much of what the skills that I needed, you know, now. It prepared me for it back then when I was a kid singing in choirs. Piano is, I would say, probably the best foundation as far oh, as yeah. you, like, sure. certainly learning to read, but you know, learning learning to play music as well. Do you play Trump, trumpets? I, I don't. I, I don't. Um, I'm, this is speaking as somebody who has absolutely zero musical aptitude at all. But, but the understanding, uh, you got the understanding of it. Sure. I mean, I talk to <laughs> yeah. a lot of musicians. It's a sure. big part of my job. So it, it, most, yeah. it mostly comes to that. I'm, <laughs> I'm reading a book about, uh, I'm reading the uh, Philip Glass book that came out a couple of years oh, ago. Yeah. And that's giving me some really interesting insight. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things he talks about is how important jazz was to him early on. Yeah, you hear he was it coming too. up like the 50s and, and 60s and was probably one of the first people to really blend those two genres. Yeah, for sure. And um, that's what I love about, I, I always bring up Gershwin in my shows, um, because having written like one of the, arguably one of the first like jazz symphony pieces, right? Like Rhapsody in Blue. You know, he was coming up in the schooling of uh, the studying, like with kind of hanging out with Rachmaninoff and Har- Harvitz and all those, all those guys were all learning and bouncing ideas off each other. And what a time, you know? But I always bring up, like, imagine all the people that, when he came out with Rhapsody in Blue, all the people that, the haters out there saying, well, this isn't authentic class, or Leonard Bernstein, too. You know, we, we, these are all trend genre heroes of mine. And if, if they'd had listened to the advice of just stick to the program and just, why would you mess with something that's already perfect, you know, and, and try to make something new out of it? There would be no Gershwin and Bernstein, you know? It's wild, you know, to go back and uh, I, I think we like take the, I think we take them for granted now like oh, yeah. and and at a certain point for a lot of people it's all just kind of gets lumped in with classical music i know like the distinction between baroque classical romantic impressionist isn't uh really talked about too much we just call it all classical music it's like jazz too you call it if what jazz is to the average person on the street they would say something and then another person would say something completely different i mean rock has become that now too because it's got a long enough history that there's been enough like subgenres and different directions that you, you really can't to just say rock. It doesn't mean one thing anymore, and that's why I urge like young artists to find like some kind of. I mean, obviously for marketing and branding purposes, especially if you're going to be on like the Spotify and all following all that stuff, you gotta align yourself with something in the beginning. But for your own artistry to develop a word that is uniquely yours. Like the Dresden Dolls came out, they, theirs was punk cabaret. For me, I came, I used trans genre because that word just resonates with me. So I think to find what is it that's uniquely your thing that then, then it creates a whole other, you know, mythos around it that 
people can follow. You're pretty conscious, though, then of the marketing side of things, would you say? Yeah, of course. No, I don't. I don't turn a blind eye to that stuff at all. And if anybody like uh, talks to my record label, they would know that I work very adamantly with the marketing team to say, how do we make this make sense? And how would find cohesion with look versus sound? Transgender is interesting, too. Obviously, there, there's um, there's LGBT connotations as well when, when using the word trans was that something that you were conscious of when you adopted oh 100 100 percent. actually i was um my cousin who's who was uh transitioning we were we were bouncing ideas off each other talking about this and i i wanted to be aware of like you know that i have uh older fans too like from my old demographic you know that may look at it like well you know get uh, like you know some of my older fans of presenters they go well let's use the word eclectic you know and i'm like Use whatever words you want. I'm not here to, you know, I, I, I don't like to tell people what to think or how to think, but I like to give them the tools necessary to form their own opinions, right? But not to tell them the answer. So then I have the fan, and I wanted to be also respectful of the LGBTQ fans I do have saying that I'm not using this word to align myself with. I'm not like, using it to make for my own benefit. What I'm doing with this word is, I mean, for me, it's about a musical coming out story and finding where on the genre spectrum you lie. But that also does translate <laughs> translate to a social connotation as well. It's all one big metaphor. And I hope that my example on the, from a musical standpoint can com- be translated and communicate to people who are maybe trying to find where they fit on the spectrum of whatever whatever identity, sexual or political or musical. As you said probably this applies more to the older fans but but for people who have had difficulty contextualizing that this at very least is something that a lot of that that people can instantly relate to is attempting to find their group of people find their musicians yeah absolutely and and the point is is that we're not um we're providing a place where it's not genre specific it's not genre based there are obviously like if you you've heard the record there's different like the songs all have like um like the first song is very bebop there's definitely like each song has its alignment of you know it's it's not like a fusion album per se you know where it's all one big mashup it's really each song is purely in its lane but every song is a different uh different lane and it's the same hat but worn different ways you know what i mean and so that's why i mix like i'll take like an older style of music but to a newer song you know that's not something that's new. And I'm not saying I'm doing something new and fresh here. But the point is, is the point you just made is that this is a place for everybody of any kind of any kind of audience to come and find something they like. Are you intentionally in certain cases trying to pick a song in a genre that would seem to be a contrast from the beginning? That's yeah, well, it in every, you know, some of the songs are a little closer than like, for Don't Run Away Parade, for example, uh, that's like super contrast versus like a Shega Jisao Daji, which is a little closer, especially not just closer in style and sound, but in also time, the eras. But I, I, I like to, um, it all comes from the story, the, the narrative of what the song is to me, what, how I've interpreted the song. And for take Don't Run in My Parade, for example, that is such a contrast. But to me, that felt, that was one of the most natural um, arrangements to write because of how the lyric is so, I mean, like, just, just take the lyric by itself, like, isolated. 
Don't tell me not to live. Just sit and putter. Life's candy. The sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. And that's such a declamatory statement. And even like the, the, the orchestration, you take it. Dun, 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 dun. That's the original Barbara Streisand orchestration style, and it sounds like a driving kind of. And there's your guitar strumming, kind of that translates to that. So each thread pulls through until all of a sudden you have a punk arrangement that writes itself. <laughs> In the process of reimagining or recontextualizing the songs, do you start by performing them in a more traditional way? Well, I, some of these I've I have performed like I've. Definitely song to run my parade, but for me, I, I try to be very careful, on, especially on my own shows. Like, obviously at home, I'm singing it all the time to, to the original, in the original style to get into that uh, character, to understand every nuance, what the composer intended. But on a live show, I'm very careful not to, of course, back in the day when I was singing with just trio, doing jazz standards, that's one thing. That's one facet of my personality. I'm talking purely... Uh, since 2021, when I started doing the transgenre thing, I was very careful not to perform these songs in their original way for the purpose of I, I wanted to test it on my audience to see if they recognized any, you know, if they recognized any elements from the original or to see if they just, if it's so uniquely its own arrangement, like, like Marilyn Manson doing Sweet Dreams. It sounds like if you'd had never... Like if you'd had heard the Eurythmics version on the radio, but then you went to go see Marilyn Manson, you're not even thinking of Eurythmics. It's just like a new song. So this was like a um, a bit of like a, a like a I was like laboratory, like a scientist in the laboratory. You know, I always try the songs out before I record them. Try them out live and workshop them. What works, what doesn't work, what what are the audience responding to? You know. Yeah, you use the phrase "get into the character of the song," which is an interesting way of putting it. Is there a sense in which performing some of this music is like acting yeah and what is acting you're just pulling from your own personal um experiences to bring into some some someone else's space or life and i mean music can be like it's like a a little bit of that and also it i mean it's still you know i'm up there as myself i'm not up there as fanny bryce singing that song in that particular moment i've chosen and curated a show that all is very personal to my story and my journey but can be you know, it's it's uh, abstract enough that it can be taken. Everybody who's listening in the audience can apply it to their own lives too. So I think that's the line. That's very. It's a very tricky line to tread. Like how much in character am I of the original character? Am I going to bring into this? But really, it's if you're pulling from your own experience, then it doesn't feel like acting <laughs> at all. And that's the the secret of acting, isn't it? <laughs> Do you have to have a personal connection with a song in order to effectively perform it? This is not something I, I don't say, answer this for any other artist. I can only answer for me personally. And for me, yes, I have to kind of, whether it's something abstract, like if it's an instrumental, obviously there's no lyrics to pull from, but to find, to be able to superimpose something that I felt, or, you know, sometimes the songs can provide answers if you, like, if you venture into that space of putting your own, something you've experienced into an instrumental piece, whereas the lyric, piece obviously i i do like to pick songs that i have personally experienced myself you know in earlier albums i i don't know if this applies for this one as well but gotten the sense that there is a marked effort to choose a set of songs that continue to apply to the current moment i think that's what a record is it's a record of where 
you or where things are at that moment in time, whether it's your, your musical, uh, your, your musicianship, your musical education for, you know, artists that are coming through school, they make records, right? But that's kind of where they are in their life of, as a musician, as a music student or as a person or where things are with the current state of the world. Like that, my This Bitter Earth album was a record that I wanted to make f- for that purpose of documenting where we were as, as a, as humanity, where we were standing, but not to answer, give my, per- but that was a very carefully curated album. It was not to put um, my own personal ideologies into the album, but to leave it more of like a question uh, and, a, and a social commentary. Specifically, how does this new group of songs on this album apply to either you or the current moment? Like I mentioned in a global sense, it's hopefully to translate to people that they don't have to pick like, you know, to be this or that, they can find where they are in the spectrum of the, but for me personally, it is, that's why I like the word transgenre. It's a transition between, uh, who, where I was before and exposing, you know, showing myself to the world of like the full, the full Veronica. Um, that's what any artist can hope for at some point in their lives is to be their fullest self and be completely open and honest with their audience. And, um, to give us also to give my audience a chance to, see where it is we're headed, give it a little, instead of doing a 180 to, now I'm going to do original rock music, you know, try this project, give it a, something that makes sense, a jumping off point for people to bring the audience along from where we were, say, here's some jazz sprinkled in here and some theater and Broadway tunes, but then also here's some like, you know, industrial metal and rock and funk and soul and James Brown and this kind of where we're headed. So if you're, are you with us? Cool. This is where we're going. Come with me. That's what that's what this album was for. Do you feel that there was a part of you that you were hiding before? 100%. <laughs> Big part. I mean, when, since I was a kid, I was, uh, before I ever had a jazz career, I mean, my jazz career started at nine, but all throughout those years, <laughs> I know it sounds funny, but I was performing like for, you know, Jazz League and Center at 11 and all that stuff. But all throughout those years, I mean, jazz was such a, just a, a facet of, who I was. I was, I wanted to bring orchestral, uh, symphonic, romantic and classical music and into my, and impressionist music into, and then when I heard Queen, they, you know, brought elements of classical music into their sound and that, that pulled me down the, the rock and roll rabbit hole, you know, and Deep Purple and, and Led Zeppelin and that whole world and just getting pulled into that, that was like, oh my gosh, this is a, a the, it's theatrics, but it's, it's got a raw, visceral thing about it that I don't get to experience when I sing jazz. Just for me, personally, that was more familial, quite literally. And so I wanted to create a world where I could experience all this in one place. Queen is probably the best gateway drug you can get from <laughs> theatricality to rock music, right? Yeah, man. Why did you feel like you had to hide that part of yourself for so long? Because as a kid, I also... Um, you ever watch that show, The Crown? From a, from a young age, I knew I was born into this, not system, but there was a, an industry element that, that followed with me as a young kid, seeing how certain sides and elements of the business worked, um, and feeling like, you know, a lot of people around me, there was a, un, unless, you know, they weren't meaning for it to be a pressure, but there was a, a unspoken pressure. You are the torchbearer of great American songbook. You are the answer, you know, just, there was all this pressure uh, to to uphold the du- the duty to uphold this 
music and this great tradition that I definitely felt proud of, you know, and I would feel that with when I was playing with people like Emmett Cohen and Benny Green and Winton. My God, I feel this. That is one part of the that's like one half, right? And then there's the other side, which is the individual and the the, the self-expression and the and the weird combination of everything that that didn't really seem to have a place in that world. So I, I for the longest time, picked duty over my my own personal self-expression. And that comes with, just like any, if I had picked the other way, that would have come with its complications as well. So I just try to... There does seem to be this uh, almost like conflict uh, in, in jazz between the more reverential side, like Wynton Wynt Marsalis being probably like one of the prime examples of somebody who feels it's uh, his duty in a certain sense to really um, hold up the, the, these great artists that came before him. But, but you know, underlying jazz's evolution generally has been this notion of change and has been this notion of like of not staying not staying in the same place were you able to experience the the latter in that as well um or was your focus always on sort of the more traditional side of the jazz world well do you have to put yourself in my shoes in the sense of the context of what i was singing when i started singing this music it was to be close to my family and my family are traditional straight ahead bebop and my dad is authentic as it gets. He was there. It's not like he studied in school and then became a... No, he was in New York in the loft scene in the late 50s, recording, playing with Art Farmer, Oscar Pettiford, and played in Chet Baker's band. I mean, he was one of the cats. And my mom was in a group with John Hendricks, you know, after Lambert Hendricks and Ross disbanded. So that is as close <laughs> in, in, their, in my era. That's as close as it gets, really. And so I felt... For me, it was just a way to get closer to my folks and to do something that as a family that we could we could do together. And when my father passed away is when my jazz career started to really take off. And so for me, I was really feeling the conflict of I want to feel closer to my dad. And I want to like, in a way, there was also a little bit of uh, uh, maybe it was self-imposed or to feel the pressure to bring their legacy out. It's not, It wasn't really for me, per se. It's not like, I want to be... A famous jazz singer that that never came into the equation, but it just sort of happened. Uh, by you know, and then I'm like, oh God, where? How am I gonna bring myself back to who I am and and find my own voice in this? And that's what COVID allowed. In what sense? Well, there were no gigs. There was no time spent going on the road, and there were no records to put out. No one's putting out records at that time, really, to, out of respect. Um, and so it really like forced me to finally get to writing my own songs and discovering what that feels like to tell your own story with your own words and your own voice. And yeah, it was just, it was a creative explosion, uh, writing all this music, developing how, okay, and then, and then the business side of things, how am I going to translate this to the fans that I have and the, the bookers and promoters I have? How are we going to transition this show, bring this show to where I want it to go? And so that I kind of broke down six month elements like in the six months of uh, periods of this kind of band and then this kind of band and then we'll introduce these elements here and these songs we'll wait for don't run in my parade but we'll put that you know i was being very strategic about it and that's what that time off allowed me to do is this album is there a sense in which it is transitional or is this really that final destination i don't i don't think there is such thing as a final destination sure. i think 
and you know everything's leading to something else you know it's it's definitely like where i was in that moment but of course a record comes out after you've recorded it right so it's like usually with most artists especially artists who are like fast paced like me or like like david bowie for example you know they come out with the record and then it's like they're already yeah, like he's already on the next thing three personalities <laughs> beyond that exactly let me rephrase it no sure when you were thinking about that place that you wanted to go um, and that you were taking this this sort of step by step transitional journey to get there. Is this the place? Is this is this record that place? Yeah, this was what this. So this was the place um, during the time of COVID. You know, two years, uh, and then that that year and a half of touring these songs, trying them out. This album was that destination place. And so then finally, when it comes out, it's like great. Now what we got? What what's next? Where are we gonna go with this? Now where are we taking this? Now could go anywhere. Could go here. Could go there. And it seems to be that the uh, audience now that they're getting used to this album and getting used to the new thing, they're saying, well, they're kind of. We've tried a few of the originals out. There's a couple, of course, a couple originals on this album, and I think people are now ready to hear what is the composer, what's the lyricist like, what's Veronica the songwriter like. So the next record. I mean, you know, insofar as you're actually thinking about the next record. You know, I know, I'm, it's uh, crazy, it's crazy. <laughs> still promoting this one, but that's how album cycles work. Yeah. You're working towards an album of originals. Yeah, man, yeah. It's just like what this what, what this uh, self-titled album was about. It was to just introduce people to uh, not just a new side, but many new sides of who I am. And uh, hopefully, you know, they, they follow me to the end and... Whatever that is, you know, <laughs> the end of the end, the end. But I look at it like a tree, you know. I look at it like a tree because that's something that's growing always. It's, there's no, you know, uh, um, it appears stable and strong, right? But in, it, it is constantly growing. So the roots are have been established. That's this bitter earth and confessions and honestly any other of the the records and live performances that people can see. Those are the roots: jazz, bebop, straight ahead, and theater. And the trunk of the tree now is. This album that we're we're working on promoting. This is the the all the nutrients needed to do anything musically or artistically are in this trunk here. That that's where all the the mix of everything is, right? And then from there, the branches, whether it's a branch that's original rock project or a branch that's a twenties musical that I want to write, or you know, the branches all are the specific artistic projects. But this had to be established first in order to, so it isn't confusing, you know? Right now it may be confusing, but in the future it'll make sense. So rock, as a writer, rock isn't necessarily your default then? For now it is. It has been for a long time, but I also write in 20s, I mean, what is rock nowadays? What is jazz? What is classical? It's these umbrella terms, right? Queen is rock, but there's so many other things, right? There's Tin Pan Alley kind of, and there's old English songs of, you know. uh, So for me, it's... uh, it's just I want to find my style. That is my style, uh, for sure. I, I would right now. It's kind of taking shape in the rock realm because that seems to be the natural place to go. But the jazz is informing the songwriting. The uh, old like kind of nineteen twenties, nineteen tens pop songs, um, classical and romantic music and opera. That's all informing. You mentioned this bitter earth before, and I'm thinking about that song specifically because. That's a really good example of a piece of music that was completely recontextualized. Yeah. I don't know if it was for 
Shutter Island, but it was on the Shutter Island soundtrack. It was inspired by that. I did a different reharm, but yes, it's that um, it was inspired by that track. I said, "Wow, like look at just what you can do by just putting something in the relative minor." <laughs> Such a simple. For people who don't know that example specifically, it's like effectively it's this Dinah Washington song from the sixties that's placed over like an, an ambient electronic track, and in a sense, like has different emotional resonance when you juxtapose those two things. Yeah. Hence the word, I love the word juxtapose, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> so yeah, of course, I wanted to, that's, that lyric, especially, uh, that song came to me during the time when I was doing the, the Monk competition and remember the Paris shootings? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's interesting how certain songs kind of just pop into our lives, whether we are searching for them or not, you know, just like people. And just where I was and where the world was at that time, that's how that song made sense to me. Just like with Don't Rain in My Parade, where I'm right now, that's how this song makes sense. Could change, but that's the beauty about music and art. It's always evolving. But at that moment in time, that that was a beacon for that album, that, that song, and the way that he had recontextualized it. And Fifeke, I think, did an excellent job of making something unique and fresh out of that, not just copying... You know, he didn't copy the harmonies or anything. There are good mashups and there are bad mashups. And when when there was that mashup trend of like well, maybe like fifteen years ago or so, there were there was a lot of examples of people just putting two pieces of music together, and it doesn't always work. You know, <laughs> you experiment, you, you 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 know, you try a few things, and sometimes you'll hit on this this perfect combination. But that's the key. Yeah, you have to experiment. You can't just make something perfect right out the gate. Sometimes maybe, but that's very rare. We always have to experiment and take that leap and build. I have to imagine that that's the case with some of the songs on, on this album. Are there are there any examples of one that ones that you th- thought would go in a radically different direction than where they ended up? I I'm, I'm, I'm pretty clear with my with my own visions. Usually, I, I <laughs> how I envision it is how it always ends up. Um, there's only been a couple songs that just for, just for, like you said, experimental live. I mean, not on the, the rec, the record, I would never put anything on the record I didn't think worked. But live, of course, there's room for that kind of, you know, oh, that was a bit, maybe that was too corny or maybe that was too obscure. Like I tried to do this version of you don't, uh, no, you don't know what love is, uh, you and the night and the music where, and and that's this part of this is also with like having the right members too. Back when I was playing with more jazz musician members, I would try You and the Night and the Music and I was what I was going for was really like a heavy like almost like um just just like dirgy rock kind of just big chords and sound and synth noises kind of in a harmonic Phryg- minor uh, phrygian sound for You and the Night and the Music and just jazz musicians can't really it's de- the ones that I was playing with, they don't think that way musically, so it didn't come across. So, yeah, it could be the element is just the musicians or the, you know, the your own vision doesn't pan out the way you think it will. But there's so many elements, right, that you have to, you can change. And then just little things or big things that can completely make it work all of a sudden. So you have to choose the group of musicians based on the kind of music that you want to perform. Yeah, and that's very tricky because you want to find guys that, or girls, whatever, people that can uh, 
that are authentic in, you know, the genres that we're playing. Um, for me, it was like finding the right uh, drummer <laughs> was the key because a lot of times the, the jazz drummers, especially like some of the young jazz drummers, they uh, can't just play rock. You know, they there's just an energy that isn't there. Um, playing something so simple but with so much, for uh, you know, the force that is required that I never got. And then, of course, with rock drummers, they can't swing a lot of the time, right? They don't have the sophistication of the language. And then I met Brian Viglione of the Dresden Dolls, who was like, literally, like there is no, he was like the perfect drummer and producer for this project because he understands music in the same way that I do. It's more than just playing authentically in these genres. It's embodying them, understanding the context. Especially difficult in this case because you need people that can play several different genres. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And classical is elements for the pianist. That's a very hard, that's a very tall order. And uh, I was very proud of Adam Klippel, his 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 skill set, what allowed him to embody all of those. You know, he plays the Chopin, he plays church organ, gospel organ, he's also playing bebop, and, you know, that's very hard to find. Do you play piano on the record as well? Oh, no, I, I'm, I, I would only want to play on my own originals. I could not see myself playing on these songs. But I, I will do that live eventually. <laughs> Why can't you see yourself playing those songs? Um, because I, I'm, a, I'm a singer, first and foremost. I'm not... I'm not a bebop pianist. I mean, I just, I'm not a classical pianist, you know? I play classical piano. That doesn't make me a classical pianist, you know? There are a lot of people that call themselves, you know, I, I, like I'm a, I'm a jazz vocalist, but to, to sing jazz music and to be a jazz vocalist are just two very different things, right? We see that all the time with pop singers who want to sing jazz, right? And it doesn't always, it doesn't embody the spirit of the music as much as we would think it would. But, um, so yeah, because I don't, I'm not a pianist. I play piano, but I'm not a pianist. Authenticity is an interesting word. Um, and it's obviously something that matters to a lot of people in a lot of different genres. Jazz, jazz is certainly one of them. Is there, when you are moving into unfamiliar territory, as far as actually performing, does something like imposter syndrome creep its way in of just Not feeling like because there's it's it's who i am it's always been who i am i just i never got to show it but it's like when a kid who's coming out you know everybody once he's come out it's like everybody's like oh, of course you know and that's been the that and of course i can speak from experience because not not in the sense of coming out in that way um musically i mean of course but in the terms of what my own experience has been the second i brought those kind of that rock and roll energy and the originals especially because no one can debate when it's your own song no one can debate how the song should be the audience goes oh of course she should be doing that you know it, it just even if they don't like it or if they want me to do the other thing it's like we like the jazz stuff but this makes sense and there's just an energy that's to me what authenticity is is when there's just no debating that somebody is just doing them <laughs> And that's kind of like what I think with coming out. I was trying to figure if I was understanding this right uh, in an interview that I was listening to. That, and I went went back and listened to the song. But on one of the Queen songs, there's what sounds to be a guitar solo, but that's actually your voice. Yep, yep. It's rock scatting, you know, just with distortion on it. Um, yeah, I've always wanted to. I don't play guitar, um, but that 
the way that guitar, the way that instrument sings, it always made sense to me. And I wanted to bring, and also to find my own thing in rock music, to bring the elements that I do, that do make me different, that will make me stand apart from the other bands um, and singers, to bring my, my bebop and scouting vocabulary and improvisational vocabulary. Because there's not a lot of room for that in the rock music that, but there could be. That's the key. Robert Plant does it a little bit, you know. He's riffing off of uh, Jimmy Page, but to actually take solos in like scatting, but but use the articulation of the guitar so it's it's authentic to the instrument. That was a goal of mine from the start, since I was a kid. Is there a sense in which scatting is the vocalist playing an instrument? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it and the vocalist has to have the understanding of the vocabulary and the theory, of course, or the ear uh, to know the language. But it's knowing that language and then know- knowing how to say something with it, right? And the ap- approach has to be conversational um, as well as mu- knowing music theory, just knowing what chords and what changes and what uh, modes to use over that. That's all well and everything, but it, it's really just tools to use as a way to communicate. It's just like when you learn a language. You know, you got to know the grammar, you got to know the the rules of the syntax and everything, but the nuances of of pronunciation and like you know the way they these different languages use input humor. And that's something that has to be there in improvisation, absolutely. That humor is an element to that performance. Yeah. yeah, like for example, when we when I do do nothing to hear from me, I'm riffing off of Gary, my guitar player, and I'll be like, "Do nothing till you hear from me. Uh, won't you please consider our romance?" And he goes, wah, wah, "You know, like, and that's there's humor right there." And I go, "Ah, oh, you know, <laughs> riffing off each other. There's a communication there, and it makes sense for the audience. Like they, they're with it. It's not like, look at that crazy line I just played. You know, it's something palatable. So that's kind of the main thing that that separates good scat singing from bad scat singing is the way in which the performer plays off of other members of the band. With the knowledge of the language. That has, yeah. And and I know that, like, language not meaning, what syllables do I use? Ba or bui? That almost is not, is a non-important thing. I mean, of course, some some, some singers have very interesting syllabic styles but it's theirs and if they have the language it's hip you know they've made a way to found a way to make it like like mark murphy or uh or um yeah even clark terry you know what does language mean in this context yeah so uh just like with um a note is like com- comparable to a word it has meaning but it's it's got uh, it without context we can't really know what to do with it right and then the musical phrase is like the sentence when you put a bunch of words together that mean something that are telling a story. So, ooh, like that's like the word oh, oh. So what about it? So, oh, what? Oh, how I'm feeling sad. You know, you wouldn't say, oh, how I'm, oh, how I'm so excited. You know, that doesn't match the emotional context of how it's played you know what i mean or the instrument and then the in- different instruments have their own articulations which can help you know uh communicate these different emotions as well like trumpets have a more forward attack uh and the tongue articulation is very like you 
but the saxophone, of course, has more of um, you can scoop more notes and have a little bit more of like a that brings a different kind of emotion, right? So, looking at the different instruments and the limitations that they have can help you get into the language, and that's why I love listening to Lester Young. You're juggling a lot then in that particular uh, example because you're taking into account the instruments, you're taking into account the um, like the, the music itself, but also I assume the the emotional context of the lyrics when there are lyrics. Yeah, yeah, and and using even if you're going to be scanning without lyrics, like not doing a vocalese style, um, like Lemmy and Ross, which there's very clearly like a, a concrete story being told. You can still tell a story just in a kind of an abstract way, but um, using just the 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 sounds of the instrument you're trying to emulate and the timbre of your voice, you know, you can tell a story that way too. It doesn't have to be with words, but the notes are like the words. And as long as the musical phrases, like every every type of jazz or rock, there's there's like a set of licks, as we call them, right? Licks that come from a certain, like bebop has licks. Um, of course, Charlie Parker, we, we attribute a lot of the famous licks to him because he was just so ahead of his time and different from everything else. So, there's a, be- a bebop lick. And, you know, and like hearing Coltrane licks versus like Louis Armstrong licks. I mean, you have to dive into these different eras and know what the different kinds of licks and the vocabulary are compared to each era. And and also that gives you context to the era that you prefer to play in. Like if cats are playing like John Coltrane, they got to listen to who John Coltrane was listening to, not just John Coltrane. Or at rock bands trying to emulate Aerosmith and Steven Tyler. Well, who were they listening to? You don't hear a lot of scatting these days. Is there a sense in which it's kind of a dying art form? I don't... I, I actually am seeing... And, and that's the thing. Everybody starts somewhere. So I don't like making fun of singers who aren't so good at it, you know, or, or like aren't as authentic in it in that moment because everybody starts somewhere. And singers, a lot of the time, you got to think of why they get into singing jazz, where they're coming from. They're coming from theater backgrounds or pop singer-songwriter backgrounds or opera. They're not coming from jazz backgrounds, a lot of them. So it's it's my job as a leaving it by example or also being an educator is to give them the tools they need to then become like there's a lot of singers i see on instagram you know every time i'm scrolling through there's like young singers transcribing solos and singing to the recordings i mean it's if anything it's becoming more of like a because of reels and all the trendy little things Mm. that people are doing on instagram it's becoming more of a thing now than it was before you may have been able to say that about scatting before in like the 80s or 90s it's a dying art form whatever but now, it's like, because of reels and all that trendy stuff on social media, it's, it's kicked back up again. It's experiencing uh, a, another life outside of jazz in a lot of cases, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, it's got to be for for me any kind of music, but jazz especially because, well, whatever word it had taken shape back then in the original, in the, in the time it was coming up. It was people's music, you know. It was a, uh, it was a way. It was Black American music, you know. Whatever word you want to use, it was, it was for the people. So it's got to be the, for the people first, for me. And and if if that kind of thing is, is catching on to young, aspiring artists and singers and musicians, and instrumentalists, then by all means, I think that's something really cool. That it's like, it is. It's still. It's showing you. It still is for the people. How did you learn how to scat? 
well, I I mean, when I was nine and I started to sing with my parents, I was, of course, singing child uh, age appropriate songs for children. Like I get I got rhythm. You were in sing closer. No. Or <laughs> <laughs> nor was I singing darn that dream. Um, no, I was singing uh, songs like I got rhythm and. Everybody's bopping and Burke's works, you know, all those kinds of songs. Standard. Standards that had, you know, weren't about romance and all that. But, I mean, my parents were, you know, my, my dad was just like, hey, if you want to scat, it's really fun. You know, and I was really nervous about it. Everyone is nervous to do that when they start out. No one just starts out singing lines. And so I, I was sitting under the piano while my dad was playing, like, a sea blues or something and he's going round and round and round he's like i love to play the blues ronnie i could play all day you just start whenever you want it's really you know my dad kind of was like it's really easy just sing one note just try on one note so i of course i'm sitting on the piano all disgruntled i'm not gonna scat and then he's going around 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 so i just go pop one note okay there's one note there's your one note dad bada up ba do beep up, you know, and if anything, like that's, I'm learning from my child scatting style how to be simpler and tell more with less. That seems to be the, the goal as a, a experienced, you know, improvisational person, you know. And so then you uh, transcribe. That's another big, uh, important stage in the development because that's where you get the language. When you say transcribe, you mean like just transcribing the notes of the song that's being the played? The notes, or? the articulation, the, if there's slurs or the, the, the style in which it's played, that's like all the elements of, of the language that we're talking about. So taking a Lester Young solo, not just writing the notes down. It starts with the notes, of course. And when you're young and you're just learning how to do this, of course, you're just starting with the notes there. But once you start to get into the nuance of, oh, let me... Oh, he, he slurred that note, which means he's not re-articulating it. He's going, which has a different sound, right? And so um, how long are he, he is he holding out notes? And what's the attack like? What's the decay, if there is decay? And stuff like that. Instrumental solos, then, are... That's, that's the jumping-off point. That's where you learn that language. It's not necessarily just from other scat singers. Yeah, I mean, like, of course, it's fun to learn Ella Fitzgerald and Mel Torme solos, but... I mean, what are they listening to is, is the key. You can do that, but don't just, that buck doesn't stop there. You want to see who were they listening to and then um, trace that back to the source as far as you can, because that gives you the context of who your favorite artists, like where they were coming from. You mentioned being nervous that first time you attempted to do that. Did you have a similar, were you similarly nervous when it came to just like singing in front of a crowd for the first time? Uh, sure, but you know, it's just like with anything, when you're ner- when you're nervous to climb a tree or when you're nervous to jump off of a, a rock into the into the lake, you know? You just you just do it. One foot in front of the next and, ah, okay, here we go. And then the more you do it, the less... <laughs> There's also just a sense in which I feel like a lot of nine-year-olds are, are more willing to take that jump and are more willing to sing in front of people. Yeah, you haven't had a life of, like, uh, being embarrassed too much. You've maybe a little moments here and there, like, Billy made fun of me today, <laughs> or whatever. But, you know, at that 9 and 10 and earlier, you kind of don't have uh, uh, those memories to hold you back. And that's why I try to listen to my younger records, because then I I want to incorporate that energy into what I do. Don't hold back, ever. 
a lot of times when I have older musicians on, I, I comment that like, oh, it's, you know, it's, there aren't a lot of jobs, there aren't a lot of people in the world who have been doing the same thing that they were doing since they were like 17. Um, but it goes back to being a nine-year-old. It's wild that you're making a career out of this thing that you've been doing since you were nine or 11. I mean, if you're an artist, uh, you, you live for it, you live and breathe it. Whether I was singing jazz at nine years old or, or even before then, I was writing stories when I was three or four, you know, making up stories that had really, I think my real talent is storytelling and singing is just a way to do that. But I really, the source of it all is storytelling. And when I was three or four, I was, you know, like any kid, their imagination runs wild. And for me, I never lost that. So it's it's seeing how plot lines and character development, it all intertwines and how I would tell a story that would go on for two hours. My mom's like, okay, okay, get to the end. <laughs> That's that's really um I want to trace it back to the, that that's the source of everything I do. Is that how one ends up writing a uh, goth rock opera? <laughs> You've done your homework, I see. That was one of the more interesting things that I found I, and there there's some video uh, of it as well. Mhm. Yeah, Vera Icon. Is it you playing a character? Yes, yes, and it's a, it's a character everything that happens is a metaphor for the things I was going through at that time. And one day I want to produce a stage show maybe off Broadway or something. Of Vera Icon. Of course, like, to do a, a project like that at that time when I was singing jazz stuff, it would too far of a 180. So I've had to build, like I said, the branches that maybe the branches, one of those branches is Vera Icon, the musical or the, the rock opera, right? That's a, yeah, Vera Icon's my Ziggy Stardust. Thing. 